Hello there, Things of Interest listeners. This is the second part of our two-part series on feelings. Um, this is a really cool episode. We touch on hysteria, the feelings around fear of failure, the feelings around being a scientist in academia, and finally, asylums and how society deals with feelings. So, without further ado, here's the episode. So I think, like, a really good starting place for this half of the episode would be to talk about, like, uh, the way that feelings have been gendered and essentially codified historically. And, like, one of those ways is uh, fainting, or as the uh, Victorians would probably have it, swooning. So essentially it was, like, for quite a long time, actually, like, the only way it was sort of acceptable for women to show extreme emotion was, like, you would show that kind of emotion by passing out. Um... And, like, the fact that it was so widespread really sort of speaks to how, like, we were hemmed into showing emotions in particular ways. And certainly it's not as extreme today, but, like, we still are hemmed into showing our emotions in particularly, like, socially acceptable ways or being labelled as crazy. And while, you know, being called crazy by horrible people today isn't as bad as, say, being sent to an insane asylum, which is what would have happened to you in olden times, like, it's still, you know, not a cool thing. Um, which sort of, it sort of leads me to the next thing, which is like, um, hysteria, which do you know much about hysteria? I know it's a woman thing. Okay. And I know it's a historical thing, but so, I don't know the specifics. Okay. So we're right in my ballpark as a, uh, biomedical researcher and that hysteria is actually a, um, was treated as a disease and um, the word hysteria I believe comes from the Greek word for uterus and it essentially meant like your uterus went wandering around your body and made you a little bit cray um, but whenever women were particularly emotional about something when men thought they were being erratic or like you know angry about the wrong kinds of things these women were often referred to as being hysterical and we still have that a lot today like somehow we managed to get through the entire last recording without at any point using the word hysterical but like often women who show strong emotion will get labeled as that in some way and it's like a very specifically female term like you would you wouldn't refer to a man ever as being hysterical um as essentially like this woman is showing too many emotions and she is doing it incorrectly for my liking therefore she is hysterical and well now today we know that the uterus doesn't like go up to your brain and mess it up um like there still is that idea of like arts a woman thing there's still extremely the like the ingrained idea that if if you're on your period then you be basically hysterical i mean the word isn't used as much these days but the the function is essentially the same to say that because you're a woman and because you know you have a uterus or you have periods that that somehow affects your rational judgment and your actual thought which is like bad on a lot of levels like firstly no secondly like not a woman necessarily have like uteruses yeah. or even if they do not yeah. not all of them get periods and to be like mm-hmm. oh well, this is a necessity like part of womanhood it's like well sorry women who don't menstruate you are no longer women now welcome to the twilight zone <laughs> it is it is a really frustrating thing that i find that happens a lot in medical science is how sexism tends to be ingrained in the actual science of it because I think we all like to view science as this kind of 
neutral arbiter of fact where in in reality it really isn't it's done by a lot of sexist people who are scientists oh and i mean we both know like historically science was ruled over by dudes Mm. who like did everything they could to keep women out of it like um marie curie is probably the person everyone knows is the quintessential woman scientist but Mm. she wasn't allowed to attend university in her native poland so she started up and like I don't know if she started up or if she just joined, but she was involved with an underground university for women where they, like, Badass. had secret meetings where they learned things. <laughs> and so, like, certainly the uh, historical... And, like, the history of science, and I think this is often a like a very strong misconception about science is that it is values neutral. But if you look back mm. historically, you can see so many points in time when science was either, like, used to validate discrimination or actually carried out in a very discriminatory manner. And Absolutely. so things like um, back in the day, it was thought that your brain size dictated how smart you were. And the white people doing this research were very distressed by the fact that it appeared that people from Africa had larger brain sizes than people from England. And people from mm. England have things like corsets, so clearly they know more. Um, and it was just like... So they started using different types of grain. So for a Caucasian um, skull, they would use a fine type of grain that fluffed up a lot. And for an African skull, they would use a very heavy type of grain that would pack down very readily. And so Mm. just completely invalidated all of the results to try and show this thing, which we now know isn't even true, but to like Mm. essentially try and validate all racism and also slavery, Mm. which is just so incredibly ridiculous to me. Like, and the fact that we still hold up science as being, like, the shining paragon of what humanity should be. And scientists is that. Like, scientists can be jerks. Yep. <laughs> like, sexist jerks. Absolutely. And, I mean, we've dragged Richard Dawkins on the show before. Oh, I'm happy um, to but, like, keep dragging Richard Dawkins. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, there, there are a lot of scientists out there who are just genuinely like sexist racist misogynistic and so there's a lot of movements in stem so science technology engineering and mathematics to try and make it a more equitable space because currently it's just not and that implicitly impacts the kind of research we do and that then impacts the kind of psychological research that is done surrounding things like feelings and women and all of that Mm. having said that there is a lot of very interesting research that comes out that shows that a lot of our stereotypes about women just frankly aren't true Mm -hmm. and so that stuff like um i'm sure you've also heard the thing like women talk too much ah well (laughs) as it turns out yeah it's it's all about perception i think it was um gina davis who brought this up to a lot of people's attention um in which the study that was done showed that when women were talking, I think it was 15% of the time, they were perceived as talking 50% of the conversation. And when they were talking 30% of the time, they were perceived as taking up more than half. So we just expect women to be silent is basically the the conclusion of that experiment. It's a fascinating study and it's particularly good because it it breaks down that kind of stereotype that... um, any of our listeners might actually have been told like Mm. in school even so like i know i was certainly told in school that girls talk more than boys and how we're we're supposedly like innately just better at talking 
which is that's not true. We're not innately better at anything, really. And that was something I well, we're innately better at being raised female. Um, don't know if that's the right use of the word innate, though. Uh, <laughs> um, this is actually something I realised I forgot to mention yesterday because it seems like basic knowledge to me. Um, so I mentioned how I'm autistic and how that changes how I like interact with feelings or perceive feelings. I don't really know how it changes it because I haven't known any other mm. kind of life. But the way that we perceive women and men differently is why autism is often picked up yes. readily in boys at around mm. the age of eight. And in women, the typical age that they are diagnosed is like early 20s. And that's simply because like when boys are having difficulty with emotions, with understanding how other people are interacting with them, when they're feeling upset and they don't know how else to deal with that, the way that they react to that and the way that they are essentially like kind of raised to react to that is like angrily, is to lash out, is to like be kind of a brat. Yeah. Whereas girls will often like be essentially like shrinking violets, like we'll be quiet, we'll mimic other people, we'll try and get everyone to like us because we want them to like us. Absolutely. It's it's definitely the case that boys are are socialized to externalize their symptoms and to externalize their problems, whereas girls are socialized to really internalize those and to try and hide those. And I think this loops back really well to the conversation we had yesterday when we were talking about how medical professionals don't perceive women's symptoms as urgently as men's, which is the same idea. And it's stuff yeah. like, um, like you also know how like uh, the symptoms for a woman having a heart attack are different to the symptoms from a man yeah. having a heart attack. Yeah. They look completely I different. That, and I no one like last year. <laughs> I learned that from Tumblr. I learned that from Tumblr too. And then too. I looked it up. And it's just I like, that from what? Too. This seems like very important knowledge to have. It's absolutely insane that we both learned that from Tumblr <laughs> and not from first aid. I've done two certified first aid courses in my life. Never learned that. Um, I read a lot, never learned that, never learned that in school, never learned it from any kind of semi-official or legitimate sounding source, never. Just, we learned it on Tumblr, like how ridiculous is that? Yeah. So um, if you're listening to this and you want to know more about how to attack symptoms of women, well, firstly, apparently we don't recommend the first aid courses that Serena did, um, <laughs> but like... <laughs> You can quite readily look this up online, but it's things like um, the chest pain for women looks slightly differently. Women will often experience pain in the back, neck, or jaw, whereas men tend to get the shooting pains down their left arm. Um, women are more likely to get things like stomach pain as well, which they might mistake for something like a stomach ulcer. Um, you're more likely to get shortness of breath, nausea, or lightheadedness, um, or a nervous and cold sweat. Uh, these aren't... I haven't done first aid so I'm not really aware of anything in men except the shooting pain down the um, left arm and chest mm. and the lightheadedness that men get because I saw that one episode of Gilmore Girls um, but like those are the kind of symptoms that you tend to see in women who are having heart attacks but also if you think someone is having a heart attack please call the emergency helpline in your particular country mm. I felt we should be responsible about yes. this. <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer, we are not medical professionals. Please seek professional Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And look, w when I was in first year, I had like mad chest pains and I went to the emergency room and I said, hey, look, I don't think I'm having a heart attack, but I have chest pains and I feel like I'm going to faint. Mm. So 
maybe I'm having a heart attack? And, like, they kind of laughed at me, but they took me through all the motions. And, look, the emergency room doctors really appreciate you, like, doing mm. that rather than maybe having a heart attack and never contacting them. Um, there's also – I've also found that uh, you tend to get taken a little bit more seriously – if you assert dominance, this is really bad. This is terrible advice to give. Like, but basically, like, kind of assert dominance when you get into a doctor's appointment. Just be like, no, I want to be taken seriously. These are my problems. And certainly I've had the advantage that, like, I have a degree in genetics. And so it can be like, no, no, use the big words with mm-hmm. me. I have taught med students. Like, I'm good. <laughs> um, but otherwise, like, it is really... Like, you might get pushed aside. Your symptoms are quite likely to be taken less seriously. The other thing to be to do surrounding that is to have a female doctor, which, like, while that might not fix everything, like, we internalise a lot of these ideas that, like, a woman's problem is probably anxiety, to be honest. Like, that's a really common idea, and, like, we do internalise a lot of those. But if you're seriously worried about that, like, having a female doctor can help. Mm. So, like, another way, and I feel like I'm talking a lot this episode, but Serena's fine with it. I'm I'm very sick. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So, essentially, the way we express and understand our own feelings, like, I think it's incredibly important to be able to understand and deal with your own feelings. Um, But this becomes particularly important in the context of something like failure, right? Mm -hmm. So, I'm very, very type A. Like, I've always been very successful I'm not as much of a perfectionist as I should be but like I'm very like I always have a lot on my plate I'm always dealing with a lot and I don't fail very much and so part of that means that like when I do fail that can be really really upsetting yeah and dealing with feelings in that context can be really difficult because often the way you want to like the way you feel you should deal with that is like not let failure bother you Like, you see the most successful people and they seem to be fine with failure. They're like, oh, yeah, no, I failed heaps of times and then I've moved on. Either that or they seem like they never actually failed, which is lies. Um, And so I think feelings are really interesting in this context because, like, everyone experiences failure really differently. So you might experience it, you might feel ashamed or really upset or, like, really disappointed in yourself. And those are all, like, quite different experiences to have. Um, And I think there it's – I also think, like, in both – women and men we don't in all genders sorry um we don't tend to recognize or really accept the feelings that come with failure very readily and like i'm i'm of the opinion um that that's like quite a bad thing like Mm. because if you like don't accept and like your feelings and don't let your emotions just kind of happen to you then you can have um like, that can cause problems further down the track. Like, that can cause mental health issues. That can cause physical health issues because, hey, stress, what's up? Mm. Um, but, like, and I find it quite interesting, the fact that people often respond emotionally to failure in a huge variety of ways. Mm. And so I always try and, like, treat it like this is a new experience. I accept this new experience. I accept what emotions come with it, and I'm going to move on and see how I do better. Um, but I've also realized that, I am fine with failure when I know how not to fail next time. But when I have no idea where to go next, I want to cry that, on the floor yeah. for possibly an entire day. That's the scary part. That's that's <laughs> the worst part, especially um, I think my, my most vivid experience would be uh, when I, I was uh, just graduated and I suddenly realized that I needed a job. 
because I was I was going through like a, a rough time and I was like for some reason I just I was going to apply for a, a PhD or a master's and then I, I missed the deadline and then I was just like fuck my life um and then I started applying for jobs <clears throat> and I had no idea how to do this um sent out a whole bunch of applications heard back from three didn't get any and it's it's one of those cases of failure where you really don't know with what the next step is like there is especially if you're moving from a very structured environment like university where there is always a next step where someone will always say here are your options you get to choose from yeah. a b and c yeah it, it was was moving from that into a world in which there are infinite options and you get no help choosing which one. So that was a really, a really tough time. And I think what got me through that was just the realization that, and I think the response that I had is a really common response to failure, uh, especially for people who aren't used to failure, is that you get this kind of all or nothing response. You think, oh, I fail at this, therefore I fail at everything, which is one irrational but too easy to fall into like it's easy to fall into that mindset that because I failed at this thing I don't want to try anything else is the feeling that you get oh yeah yeah like I don't and I uh and I definitely get that from my current job as like a research scientist that when one experiment doesn't work I'm immediately Mm. like I'm the worst researcher that has ever walked this planet Mm. why am I doing a PhD everyone should just fire me and be done with this um, which I often will like play up a bit and be like quite hyperbolic about it because it means I don't actually have to address my real feelings. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is sometimes, I do find that sometimes it's helpful when, if you're hyperbolic about it, you then suddenly realize how silly it is. And even though the feeling that you get from it is absolutely uh, there and it exists, suddenly when you compare the fact that no, you failing at this one thing doesn't mean that you fail at everything. And if you compare the two cases of, okay, either A, I can keep being sad forever and not try anything again, or I can let myself be sad and try one more thing, just one more thing, like just do the next step. And when you compare those two options together, it's very clear that like, what have you got to lose if you just try one more thing? Yeah, actually, that's something I found super helpful, helpful is, like, thinking about what the worst thing that can happen is and just being like, okay, if I try this, what's the worst possible outcome? Well, it doesn't work, and I waste how long? Like, two hours? Okay, let's just do it then. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's really helpful because, like, you haven't, like, set yourself up for failure, but you've recognized what that failure looks like and how it's not actually that bad. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It sort of helps moderate the crying on the floor. Yeah. But sometimes you sometimes you need to cry on the floor, man. And like I think Absolutely. accepting that is okay. Yeah. You did an honors year, I'm sure you understand. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I think everyone in that class understood. There was there was a lot of lying on the floor. There was a lot of crying on the floor. There was a lot of lying on the desk. There was just it was there was a lot of like horizontal lying around <laughs> everywhere, really. <laughs> oh. And actually, 
this is something I think people don't really notice um, or, like, recognise before they go into higher education, which, like, no shame if you don't. Mm. But, like, man, if you go into research or higher education, it takes this incredible emotional toll on you. Absolutely. Like, doing – like, I'm currently doing a PhD, and doing a PhD isn't just, like, mentally difficult. It doesn't just, like, stretch my own abilities and I become a larger and better person. I don't know. But, like, it's emotionally really grueling. Mm. Um, and I think that's something we kind of forget a lot. Absolutely. That was something that surprised me. And that was something that was one of the hardest hurdles to go through, uh, was the fact that when you're doing research on the frontier, you're alone. You're essentially alone. I mean, you can maybe talk to your supervisor about some things, but they're not doing your research. So they don't fully understand what you're doing either. It is a really... It's a really lonely place to be when you are literally the only person in the world who understands what you're doing and no one else is going to understand it until you've finished it and then you prepare a presentation or write up a paper. Like during the time of research, you are literally alone. And that was something that I didn't expect. And that was something that hit me quite hard was just the lack of people to talk to about work. Do you find that too? Um, so I think in biology we have a little bit different in that you've often got quite a few people working on a very similar thing. Mm. And so, like, you'll be using the same experiments to interrogate, like, different questions or different facets of a question. Mm. So if something's not working, I can definitely go to someone and be like, experiment, fix it. Make it, <laughs> make it good. This is very difficult, That's really please. Good. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Um, I guess I was doing theoretical physics, so it wasn't, like, any kind of, like, experimental stuff that I could tips or like tricks that I could share with friends or anything. It was, it was very much like all in your head. And there were other people who were doing like similar topics in which we could, we could have really good discussion about that. But when it came to your That's... own project, it was on your paper in your head, <laughs> just by yourself. <laughs> For anyone out there who is like not in uni yet, maybe, and is considering doing science, don't feel bad if you feel like you don't know what you're doing because no one feels like they know what they're doing. <laughs> also, like, I've been in the situation a few times now where I've been very hungover and my supervisor tried to ask me about some specific and complicated part of my research and how it's going, and I've just been like, no, no. <laughs> stop. <laughs> so, yeah, and I mean, like, it's... Like, I enjoy doing my PhD. I think higher research and, like, higher education is really valuable, mm. both, like, to the world and also to yourself and, like, your personal growth. But, man, it messes you up. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I do believe that universities have a lot further to go in terms of the support they can offer in mental health. Yeah, and I mean, in academia, there are like, there's been a few studies, um, none in Australia or New Zealand, unfortunately, but in the US and the UK that say that the rate of depression and other mental illness within um, academia is just like 50%. Yeah, yeah, and that's insane. That's, I shouldn't say that. Like, <laughs> I, yeah, that is a terrible word choice for that particular it's, comment. Yeah, it's like, it's oh, one of those, sorry. it's calling, uh, saying, the word guys all the time it's calling things insane or crazy crazy insane crazy those words like those are the things that i'm trying to tone down at least from my vocabulary and it is harder than i thought it really is because i i won't realize that i've said it until i've said it and then i would have been like 
fuck, fuck. <laughs> My apologies. Oh, we I mean, like, we're all learning, right? We're all becoming better people constantly. Back to feelings. Back to feelings. What is your last bullet point? Um, so the last one I had was sort of more, again, historically on how women's feelings in particular, but also some men's feelings, have been sort of hemmed in and defined by broader society, and that is um, the use of insane asylums. Mm, I don't have and, much like, these knowledge were... Okay, so I know a little bit. So um, I know that historically women who were just like, kind of a pain in everyone's butt were put into the asylums, along with some women who probably quite genuinely had mental illness. Mm. Um, but sort of, like, they've formed a really bizarre role in our society and that they also became a place where if someone was pregnant outside of wedlock, you'd put them there. Um, right. If someone, like, had been raped and was maybe, like, super unhappy about mm. that because obviously you would be, they'd be put in an insane asylum. And I think that was, um, it was more just kind of like an interesting point in how our emotions have been so carefully prescribed by other people for such a long time, particularly like the very strong emotions and the very strong displaying of emotions. Like that was kind of allowed, but not really. And the use of insane asylums to like, basically say these women are not the kinds of women that we accept in society was very questionable. Right. So were, was it predominantly women that went into these asylums or was it both? Um, uh, was it everyone? I believe it was, like, it would depend. Mm. Um, but they, uh, they gender segregated them. So when I talk about, like, women going into asylums, that's, like, the stuff that I know about mm. because like they were women only asylums. Okay. It was essentially like in the 18th to the earliest 20th century, if women could not be like controlled properly by a like male dominated culture, they would be then institutionalized because of that. And yeah, it was essentially like if men didn't agree with like how women were acting, they'd be like, Oh, mentally ill. Just, Gotta gotta go to the asylum. Okay, bye. That's really interesting. Um, and and I think in a lot of cases, women could only like leave these asylums if they got married and if their husband said they wanted to come out. Wow. Um, but I'm not entirely sure about that. This just gets me thinking about just the history of of silencing women and and how much like before before asylums, you had people claiming women were witches for no good reason other than the fact that they didn't like those women and they didn't want them going around spreading their ideas or, or whatever. So they essentially killed them, made up made up a nonsensical reason that these women were not, not like everyone else and not fit enough to be incorporated into society and ostracized them. And a lot of the times straight up murdered them. And it's interesting to wind back the tape not too far from, not too long ago, and to see that similarly the women who society frowned upon and said that they they basically didn't fit in as well, they got sent into, into asylums for no good reason. 
as well. So what I wonder now is what is the modern day equivalent? Like, what do we do with women now who, quote unquote, don't socialize, don't fit in with um, current societal norms? Oh, we harass them off Twitter a lot, don't yeah. we? Yeah. Basically, when dox I, them. We, referring to humanity. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So they'll get their personal information posted online, um, their computers hacked, usually photos leaked kind of thing. So social... And yeah. you might have... Actually, yeah, you might have seen um, a mutual friend of ours uh, commented about... Um, complained about a sexual assault that either her or a friend of her experienced at a bar... Mm. And an ex-housemate of hers has now been harassing her online, creating new Twitter accounts to get in touch with her, has emailed her work. Wow. Like, so I guess that's the, the modern equivalent to the witch burnings and the insane asylum. Yeah. It's just like having people be able to access like your entire life, which is like, I think moving into an increasingly digitized society can be a really good thing. I think the way it interplays with things like access to news, access to the ability to like have a loud voice for people that might not have had that before. The incredible access to education we now have is amazing. But it also means that people can be jerks and people can be harassers and people can be absolutely dangerous mm. in ways that we haven't seen previously. And certainly in Australia we have laws surrounding it. Um and, like, the particular crime if someone is harassing you online is the use of digital technology with an intent to menace, which I think has um, grown out of probably a case where someone killed themselves because that's where these laws tend to arise from. Mm. Um, but there's no equivalent in New Zealand, and because this friend is in New Zealand, she hasn't been able to get, like, recompense from the police, essentially. Yeah. And it's a case of educating our police force as well and educating our legislators because it's it's a thing that's so new that people in, in power don't really know how to how to deal with it. Uh, I, I've definitely had an experience where uh, I did feel like I needed to go to the police and I went to the police. And when I told them of the situation, they, the first response was, um, have you tried blocking them? <laughs> Which is just like a quintessential sign that they really don't understand how the internet works and how and how if you have someone who really really wants to get in touch with you they somehow will find a way yeah no i'd um a my my the guy that was harassing me would contact me threatening me and when i talked to people about it they were like oh you should just block it it's like no 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 i mean i feel like i want to know if he is like yeah threatening me with coming to my house or, like, trying to sue me. Mm. Like, I, I want to know about that. I just also want you to make him stop. Yeah, it's it's not the case in which you can... It's definitely a, uh, a plausible situation in which you could block a harasser and the act of blocking them could set them off to do something even worse. And that's something that I feel like a lot of people don't consider if they're, if they're not innately familiar with the platforms that we're using yeah um and i think like you also see that in like bullying in school and things like that mm. right like often the advice given is well just ignore the bullier but the problem is like often that means that they do worse and worse things and there was the example of the woman who was doing um 
an art piece and as part of her art piece she stood there and she would not respond no matter what you did to her and there were like an array of things beside her that you could use like things you could use to draw on her and like you know but there were also like weapons and stuff there and it was very quick before people were like yelling in her face and hurting her yeah just because of that like lack of response yeah uh no she is a fantastic performance artist and that piece of art got to the point because there was a loaded gun in the room right there was a loaded revolver in the room there were a lot of things there were uh, ribbons there were scissors there were knives and she stood there naked and saw what people would do to her and at first it was very tame people would put flowers in her hair people would stick a ribbon on her chest or something um and it got to the point where so there was a loaded gun in the room and someone had picked up that gun loaded the bullet into the gun and that person had to be taken out by security oh my god i hadn't heard about that i need to find the name of that piece because that was just incredible and really terrifying like relevation to how far people would go if you don't stop them yeah and essentially how readily we can stop thinking of other people as being human because mm. like when you think about world history but also particularly about that art piece like in order to be that awful to another person at some point we have to stop thinking that they're a person at some point we have to put that distance between us or if we still think they're a person be like you're at least a kind of person and that sort of reflects how women have been treated throughout like all history despite the fact we can literally grow babies inside of ourselves which i think is pretty cool it's pretty awesome um i think it was aristotle who said that uh men were the provider of the seed women simply the soil in which it grew which is Mm. reflective of the age in which he lived yep. okay i found the i found the name of the piece um it's called rhythm zero and it was done in 1974 and it was a performance art six hours where she laid out 72 different items and i was wrong before i um i said that she started naked she did not start naked she started clothes and people cut off her clothes I remember the the pictures that I saw. She was she was topless. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, it was. Um, That's horrifying. It is horrifying. She she's described it that what she learned was that if you leave it up to the audience, they can absolutely kill you. And what I said before wasn't quite true. There was a person who aimed the gun at her head, and then there was another audience member that took it away. Oh my god. But it was gosh. a very aggressive atmosphere. And then after the six hours was up, she ended the piece by standing up and walking towards the audience, and everyone ran away to escape confrontation. Oh my god. Yeah. Her work is incredible. All of her work is incredible. She's done some amazing things. Thanks for listening to Things of Interest. It's a show about life and tech through a feminist lens. And this episode on emotions, what are they? What do they want? We might not know, but hopefully now you feel a bit less alone about being trapped in a glass cage of emotion. You can find us on our website at thingsofinterest.co and on Twitter at castinginterest. And if you've got something you want to discuss, ideas for how we can improve, any media you want us to review, drop us a line through either of those. 
Uh, or, or if you'd like to leave us a voice memo of what you think, your thoughts about the show, that would be awesome. Email it to us. We're at castinginterest at gmail.com. Uh, and we might feature you in the show. That'd be fantastic. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, you can ask us questions as well, but as I've mentioned throughout this episode, we are not an advice show. <laughs> please don't trust what we say. Um, but, you know, if you've enjoyed us, uh, please leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe, and if you like what we say, recommend us to a friend, because we really want to share the love. Um, thanks for listening, and stay in touch.